1: hello you guys happy wednesday welcome back to another episode of killer instinct i hope you guys had a great and safe halloween weekend and I hope you guys enjoyed Hollow Week. It was so much fun to read through your comments on all of the cases we covered and to see how interested you guys were in it. It's always so cool to be interactive with you guys on these cases and really keep the conversation going. So thank you to everyone who made Hollow Week what it was this year. And I hope that we are able to do it again next year. So let's talk about the case that we are going to be covering today. Today we are talking about the murder of seven-year-old Jacqueline DeWallaby. This, to this day, is an unsolved case that has many twists and turns, and I'm super interested to hear what you guys have to say about it and what your take is on this whole case. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Jacqueline Marie DiWallaby was born on May 17th, 1981, to her mother, Cynthia DeWallaby. and Jacqueline's biological father is a man named Jim Guess. However, after having Jacqueline, Cynthia went on to remarry a man named David DeWallaby. and then David went on to legally adopt Jacqueline. David and Cynthia got married in 1984, and David legally adopted Jacqueline six months later. At the time of Jacqueline's disappearance, Cynthia was 26 years old and working as a dietitian at a hospital, and David was 31 years old and working as a carpenter. And in the nine years that David worked as a carpenter, the only single day that he ever missed of work was the dag that he had adopted Jacqueline. Jacqueline and David were said to have a very good relationship. They liked to go fishing together, they liked to go bowling together, and according to Cynthia, Jacqueline and David had a quote-unquote tremendous bond. So let's talk about the household for a second. So Jacqueline lived with her mother and her stepfather, David, as well as her four-year-old brother named Davey. And Davey was the full biological son of David. and Cynthia. So Davy lived in the house as well, along with the grandmother. The grandmother also lived with the family, and the grandmother is David's mother, so the paternal grandmother. She was living in the house at the time as well, and her name is Anna. Now the Diwallaby family lived in Midlothian, Illinois, which was a village in Cook County that had a population of about 14,000 people, so it was a pretty decent size. Now, what's funny is that this house that the family lived in, where the Diwalabies lived, was actually the house that David himself grew up in, so it's interesting to see how it all comes full circle like that. Now, this case takes place in early September 1988. And while school was picking back up again for kids and people were coming off from summer, Jacqueline was looking forward to something else. Jacqueline was excited for Christmas to say the least. That is a total understatement. Jacqueline was ecstatic for Christmas right after summer was over. That's all she could think about. That's all she was looking forward to. She absolutely loved Christmas. And on the day before her disappearance on September 9th, 1988, Jacqueline fell asleep holding a gift catalog in her hand. She had been circling gifts that she wanted to give each member of her family right before she had fallen asleep that night. Cynthia said that on the night of September 9th, Jacqueline fell asleep a little after 10 p.m. and was still in her bed sleeping when she went back and checked on her for the final time a little bit after 11 p.m., not knowing that this would be the last time she would ever see her daughter. So let's talk about September 10th. On the early morning hours, David and his son woke up early at around 7.15 a.m. And according to David, he said that they both tried to be as quiet as possible because they didn't wanna wake up his mother, which was the grandmother, Anna, who was sleeping in the basement. However, when he initially woke up, David noticed something unusual in the house. David noticed that the front door to the home was partially open, and at first he thought maybe his mother had left the door open for some reason, maybe she went out early and just left it open by accident, so he didn't think too much of it. Then about two hours later at 9:30 a.m. Cynthia went into Jacqueline's room to wake her up for the day, and this is when she noticed that Jacqueline was not asleep in her bed. According to Cynthia and David, they said that the two of them immediately started searching around the house for Jacqueline, and when she still wasn't found anywhere in the home, they thought it could be possible that Jacqueline could have walked to a friend's house without telling anyone. I'm not sure if this was something that she did often or not. However, Cynthia and David called the family that Jacqueline was thought to possibly be with. However, they also said that Jacqueline never came over that morning. Once they figured out that Jacqueline wasn't at this friend's house, Cynthia, David, and Davy all started walking throughout the neighborhood to see if they could find Jacqueline anywhere. However, after an unsuccessful search, they returned back to their home where they met David's mother, Anna, and they told her that Jacqueline was missing, which is when she also joined in on searching the neighborhood as well. Anna said that Cynthia was standing in the middle of the street, screaming out Jacqueline's name, hoping that she would hear her and come running back, however, that was not the case. When they returned back home the second time from searching the neighborhood, Cynthia searched through the home again, and this time, she discovered that the basement window had been broken into, and it was after this discovery that 911 was called to file a missing person's report. Authorities immediately arrived to the D'Wallaby house and very quickly treated this as an abduction case due to the broken window in the basement. They thought it was very possible that they were going to receive a ransom call from the abductor who was going to demand money from the family in return for Jacqueline's safety. Investigators also thought that it was extremely possible that Jacqueline was abducted by someone that she knew. When you look at statistics, stranger abductions for children are a lot less likely than abductions that are carried out by someone that either the child knows or that the family knows. So due to that statistic is why authorities thought it was very likely that this was someone that either Jacqueline knew or the family knew. Now, when authorities got to the home, Cynthia had actually told the police that Jim, which is Jacqueline's biological father, had actually tried to kidnap Jacqueline before. So because of that, Cynthia and David pretty much thought right away that Jim was responsible for this. However, after authorities looked into it, it was soon discovered that there was no possible way that Jim could have been involved in this because at the time of Jacqueline's abduction, he was actually serving time in prison for sexual assault, so that theory completely went out the window and authorities were back at square one. Now, the next person that came to mind after Jim was a man named Timothy Guess, and this is Jim's brother. Timothy was a paranoid schizophrenic and lived nearby the Dewallabies. However, he also had an alibi. Now, once the family realized that both of their two main suspects in their mind were not involved in this, the fear really started to set in because now they had no idea who could have taken Jacqueline. Now, when the police initially conducted their investigation, they searched through the entire home and were unable to find any fingerprints or DNA of anyone else that didn't already live in the home. Now, from the get-go in this investigation, and this will continue throughout the rest of this case, Authorities had a very hard time believing Cynthia and David's story. They thought that the likelihood of a stranger breaking into the home, climbing through a window without disturbing any of the objects below the window, Because there was a towel rack that was sitting right underneath the window that was broken, and this towel rack was still perfectly intact, and authorities thought that if there were to be an intruder coming into the house, surely there would have been some of the belongings that got dismantled in the process. They also thought that the likelihood of a stranger walking on the creaky wooden floors of their home leading into Jacqueline's room that was located right across from her parents' room without being caught and then successfully taking Jacqueline out of the house without her making any noise whatsoever was also very unlikely. Authorities had a big problem with David's reaction to the door being open. If you remember, we talked about when David woke up that morning, he saw that the front door was partially opened and he didn't really think much of it. Authorities thought that if it was routine for him to lock that door every single night and never once before had it been opened the way it was when he woke up the day that Jacqueline was discovered missing, why was he not more concerned about the door? Now, when it came to the police work in this case, it is extremely sloppy. Authorities never blocked off Jacqueline's room and treated it as a proper crime scene. They allowed Anna, the grandmother, to go back and sleep in her room that same night that Jacqueline was discovered missing. And they never did a complete and thorough protocol search throughout the Dewallaby home. And when it came to the basement window, there were only far away pictures taken of the window. So there were never any close ups to give authorities a really good look when going back and looking through all of the potential evidence. They didn't have any good pictures of this window, which meant that they couldn't get any details off of it. Now, here's where things get really frustrating because in the midst of the investigation, in the first day, the Dwallabies had people coming in and out of the home to offer their condolences to the family. Now that alone is not a good idea because now you're adding more people's DNA into the home and not treating it like a proper crime scene but here's where things get absolutely crazy is because these friends when they came into the home they started sweeping up and cleaning up the home which completely just gets rid of any possible evidence they went as far as sweeping up the broken glass of the basement window and they also just swept all throughout the home which is the last thing you would ever want to do because you want to preserve any possible last bit of evidence that you can And the authorities were there while this was all happening. So it wasn't like they did this behind the authorities back. The authorities were at the home while the Dwallabies and the Diwalibe's friends were doing this, thinking that they were doing something good. And the authorities did not say anything to stop it. So this, in my opinion, is on the fault of both the family and the police. The police didn't treat this as a proper crime scene. And in turn, the family had people just coming in and out and cleaning up the crime scene as well, and police did absolutely nothing about it. On the afternoon of September 10th, so the day that Jacqueline was reported missing, Cynthia and David were both scheduled to take polygraph tests, which David ended up passing. However, the examiner decided that Cynthia was still too emotional and upset to take the test. Now, regardless of him passing the polygraph test, authorities still wanted to talk to David, so they ended up bringing him in for a second interview. And David said something in this second interview that stood out to the authorities when talking about Jacqueline's disappearance. When it came to Jacqueline's disappearance, David referred to it as, quote-unquote, the accident and that every time he would bring up when Jacqueline went missing he would say that was when the accident happened and this was a huge red flag to authorities because that's a very strange way to word your daughter going missing and it could be telling as to what actually happened. However, according to David, he said that this was all a very big misunderstanding because he wasn't saying the accident. David said that he was actually referring to it as the incident, so not the accident, the incident, so David was saying that the authorities just didn't hear him properly. Another big question that investigators had was whether or not the broken basement window had been broken from the inside of the house or the outside of the house. That was the next thing they wanted to figure out because investigators said that by the look of the window, it appeared as if the window had been broken from the inside. However, they really had no solid evidence to back that up, partially because all of the evidence they did have was already cleaned up, because everything was already swept up by the Dwallaby's friends. And along with that, there weren't any good pictures taken of the window because all of the pictures that were taken were taken from a really far away angle and the details of the window were not able to be captured. And this was crucial, knowing whether or not this window was broken from the inside or the outside, because if it was broken from the inside, that meant that whatever happened to Jacqueline happened inside of the home and was most likely done by someone who lived inside of the home as well. Now, at this point, Cynthia and David were not looking good to the media because they were not talking. No one had really heard anything from Cynthia and David, so when you have the authorities pointing fingers at you and you're not coming out saying anything, it doesn't necessarily look the best. However, Cynthia and David were advised by their lawyers to not say anything to the public, so that is how they defended themselves as to why they didn't say anything. But the authorities really granted them no mercy when it came to the public in terms of how they spoke of Cynthia and David. They definitely made it seem like they were being uncooperative. So now we move on to five days after Jacqueline's disappearance. Cynthia and David were sent to give second polygraph tests, which this time, the polygraph test showed that Cynthia was also in too much of an emotional state to take the test, so she didn't take it. However, David, this time, did not pass the test, and was deceptive on multiple questions. Because of the results being that he was deceptive, this led him to being kept at the police station and interrogated by authorities for another five hours. Now, this same evening, on September 14th, which was five days after Jacqueline's disappearance, at around 6 o'clock p.m., there was a body of a young girl discovered only four miles away from the DeWallaby home in an overgrown field behind an apartment complex. When authorities arrived on the scene, they were able to confirm that the body that they discovered was Jacqueline DeWallaby. Okay, we're gonna take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you apartments.com the place to find a place all right you guys welcome back jacqueline's body was discovered wearing the same nightgown that she had gone to sleep in on september 9th and her body was found wrapped up in her own comforter rope had been wrapped twice around Jacqueline's neck, and her underwear had been discovered two feet away from her body. Now, maggots had actually gotten to Jacqueline's body, which caused her body to decay at a much more rapid pace, which made it a lot more difficult for the medical examiner to conduct a thorough exam on her body. However, she did include that Jacqueline most likely was strangled to death, but she was not able to determine if she was sexually assaulted. Because of the maggots, her body was already too decayed to a point where they couldn't determine if she was sexually assaulted. Now, literally, while Jacqueline's body was being discovered, David was still in the police department being interrogated by authorities about his possible involvement. It wasn't until an hour and a half after her body was discovered that he was made aware of the discovery and when david did find out that jacqueline had been found the investigator said that he didn't believe it at first he didn't believe that they found her body however after a little while authorities said that david told them quote well i guess you think i should cry now end quote this was a statement that authorities found to be very very odd. It's kind of a condescending thing to say after you find out that your daughter's body has been discovered. But you could also look at it in a way of David is being interrogated and interrogated and pointed the finger at in a situation where he's innocent in, if that's the route that we're going to take for a second, that he's innocent in. And now he feels like authorities are looking at him being like, we found her body tell us what happened and trying to force him into a confession. And he could just say, well, I guess you think I should cry now because he thinks that that's the reaction that they're looking for. Like I said earlier, all in all, the authorities pretty much pinned David and Cynthia for this from the get-go. However, there were certain things that David and Cynthia said that did make them look questionable. You know, saying, I guess you think I should cry now is definitely something that's going to raise eyebrows from people. But regardless, Regardless of what the authorities believed, they had no solid evidence that David was responsible for this, so he ended up being released from the interrogation. Now, once Jacqueline's body was discovered, it put a lot of pressure on the authorities to find the person responsible for murdering Jacqueline. And instead of going through a proper investigation, they thought the best thing to do was to pin this entire thing on David and Cynthia without really having any solid evidence against them. There was just as much evidence on David and Cynthia as there was the possibility of someone breaking into the home and kidnapping Jacqueline. However, authorities had pretty much already made up their mind on how this case was going to go. So because of this, Cynthia and David's attorneys again told them to stop talking to the authorities, which is when the police publicly came forward and stated that Cynthia and David were being uncooperative and that they were the primary subjects. And then just two days before Thanksgiving in 1988, Cynthia and David Dewalaby were arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Jacqueline. The main argument police made here was that they believed that Jacqueline was murdered inside of the home and that David had gone off and disposed of her body. Police also announced that they had two eyewitnesses who stated that they saw David in the area that Jacqueline's body was discovered. Now, listen, I don't usually like to give my two cents until we complete the case, because I want you to be able to form your own opinion, minus what I say. I kind of just like to give you the facts as we know them, and you guys can form your own opinion, which I'm still going to do that. However, I want to make it clear, because I know I had to make sure I was understanding this correctly while I was researching. There really is no solid concrete evidence that the police had ever came forward with at this time that suggested or proved that David and Cynthia were responsible for this murder there was none then a year and a half later in Chicago 1990 the trial began now when it came to motive and why the Dwallabies would want to murder their daughter the prosecution had no motive they couldn't come up with a proper motive as to why the Dualabees would do this But the prosecution said that they didn't need one. They did not need a motive. They said that the facts were simple and that there was no outside intruder that came into the home. So the Duallabys had to be responsible prosecution argued that an intruder would make noise and leave fingerprints, all things that didn't happen. And the prosecution also argued that there was a layer of even dust, like an even layer of dust on the window that was broken into, and if someone were to come in through that window, they would have to have made a mark in the dust. The prosecution also promised two eyewitnesses to come and take the stand. However, they were only able to come up with one. This man was 35-year-old Everett Mann who had lived at the apartment complex in front of the field where Jacqueline's body was discovered. Everett testified that he was coming home around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, which was the early morning hours of the 10th. Everett said that he saw a car in the parking lot of the apartment complex pulling away from the edge of the field where Jacqueline's body was found. Now, while Everett said that the car did look similar to the DeWallaby's car, he said that he couldn't tell the race of the person driving the car. Now, Everett did pick out David out of a photo lineup, however, he then later said that when he saw the car, he was about 75 yards away and it was a dark parking lot. So everyone's argument here on the defense's side was that there was no way that Everett was able to tell that it was David DeWallaby driving the car if he was 75 yards away and in a dark parking lot. Now, interestingly enough, right before the jury started their deliberation, the judge actually acquitted Cynthia Dewalaby of all charges. So, she was now off from this because the only information they had against her was that she was at the home the night that Jacqueline went missing. However, when it came to David... His fate was still uncertain at this point. Now, once the jury began their deliberation, they deliberated for three days. And when the verdict came back, David DiWallaby was found guilty of first-degree murder of Jacqueline. And everyone was absolutely shocked. Everyone had prepared for David to be found not guilty. That was the expectation of this. And so when the verdict came back, no one could believe it. Now, according to a woman who was on the jury, when the jury was going through the evidence photos by themselves, so when they were deliberating and going through the evidence photos, there was a picture of a door in the Dewallaby home. And this was Davy's bedroom door, Jacqueline's younger brother's bedroom door. And this door had a bunch of punch marks on it. Like it looked like someone had punched this door multiple times. And this door was never explained. This picture was never explained by neither the prosecution nor the defense. So the jury basically came up with their own conclusion about this picture and basically concluded that these marks were from David and his wild temper. They said that that was the only explanation, was that these marks on the door came from David and his crazy temper. And it wasn't until after the trial that it was discovered that the marks on the door were were there years before David and Cynthia even ever moved back into the home. So there was absolutely no connection between these marks on the door and David having an outrageous violent temper. Which, by the way, everyone who knew David said that this was not his personality. He did not have a violent temper. All of their friends were standing by them. And I know we've seen cases before where, you know, the friends and family members stick by the people in question and it turns out that they are guilty. However, everyone who knew David said that he didn't have a vicious bone in his body. However, regardless, David was sentenced to 45 years in the Stateville Maximum Security Prison located in Joliet, Illinois. Now it is around this time after David's sentencing where a man named Robert Byman comes into the picture. Now Robert Byman is an appeal attorney, and when he heard about this case, Robert actually took on this case pro bono and said that when he looked into the case, there was no evidence that proved David was guilty whatsoever. So on June 12th, 1991, Robert brought David to court to help him appeal this case. And at first, the judges did not want to hear it. There were three different judges on the Appellate Court that didn't want to believe that David had nothing to do with this. They had already made up their mind. The charge had already been in place. already sentenced. They didn't want to believe that he had no take in this. However, Robert was adamant that there was no evidence that said that David had anything to do with Jacqueline's murder. And this hearing, which usually hearings like this on average last about 20 minutes, this hearing went on for two and a half hours and then five months later in October 1991, the courts concluded that there was not enough evidence to convict David and he was granted an outright reversal. On November 13, 1991, after spending 18 months in prison, David was released. Now, a lot of investigators were not happy when David was released from prison because it meant to them that they might have gotten this one wrong. Some of them to this day still believe that David and Cynthia are responsible for Jacqueline's death. However, this case to this day remains unsolved. As far as the public perception of this case, people are really, really upset with how the authorities handled this one because there just isn't enough evidence to prove that David and Cynthia are guilty. I also wanna make a quick mention of the fact that during this time, during the trial and during when David was arrested, there was actually a mayor who was being elected and he was somehow involved in the police investigation. And a lot of people think that this mayor, as well as the authorities, wanted to put a quick band-aid on arresting David and making it seem like he was the one responsible and that they figured the case out really, really quickly to help this mayor in his election. So a lot of people think that there's a lot of corruptness going on in this case, and so I wanted to mention that as well. But all in all, I am super curious to hear what you guys have to say about this one. Do you think that David and Cynthia did this? I know that there's not a lot of evidence to prove it, but anything is possible. But if David and Cynthia didn't do this, do you think it was a family member? Do you think it was a friend? Do you think it was the uncle? I know some people still do believe that it could have been Jim Guess's brother, Timothy. So that's the big question here is who did this? Jacqueline deserves justice. And there was so much time being spent on David and Cynthia that it really drew away from the actual perpetrator and really solving this case. So let me know what you guys think. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Again, that is just killerinstinctpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you won't want to miss it. I will be back next week with a brand new case and until then, stay safe guys.